Today we're looking at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. I put back there on a chair a couple of documents. Uh, they're just quick things I worked up maybe to help you visualize things or to work from. One is, has a map on it. That's new. That I'm handing out today, afresh. There was another one back there, and the reason I brought it is the last time I handed that out on the first day, not everybody was able to get one because we ran out. I underestimated how that would go, and so I put more back there. So if you picked up both, you may already have one of them. And I didn't make a lot of the other one, the, the older one, so if you don't need it, you can leave it back there, and somebody that wants it can pick it up. But we're looking at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. This is the general or initial call made to Moses. This is kind of, the lesson today is kind of the discussion starter between God and Moses. Their discussion is going to go on a while before Moses accepts, I guess that's the right word, God's call on him to lead the people out of Egypt. Last week we saw some significant events uh, but it was a chapter very limited to only the necessary details. We see Moses born. We see the king's edict that all of the babies should be thrown in the Nile. And, but Moses' parents saw he was beautiful, and they hid him for three months when they couldn't hide him anymore. You know the story. It's been taught to kids for years probably as part of your past, but they made a basket that they sealed up and put Moses in it and put him in the Nile and his sister remained there watching that basket with Moses in it is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and the sister takes the initiative and goes up and says hey I can go get a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby because obviously it wasn't an actual physical birth from the from Pharaoh's daughter so that's what they did and so the sister brings her mother, Moses' mother, and the uh, princess of Pharaoh says, hey, yes, that's great, and I'll pay you for doing it. So she gets paid uh, as she takes care of Moses. Now Moses grew, and when the time was right, he was delivered to Pharaoh's daughter as her child. He went through all the privilege and the schooling and everything that happened, and she was the one that gave him the name Moses. When he was grown, the scriptures tell us, he rejected being Pharaoh's daughter's son. He chose his own people instead, even though they would have a lower class. They lived in hardship. From Hebrews 11, we know it said he even chose the reproach of Christ over worldly living in a season of sin. Moses is out and about. He sees an Egyptian beating Hebrew. When the time seems right by looking around and it doesn't appear there's any witnesses, Moses killed that Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And the next day he's out and about and he sees two Hebrews fighting and he says to the aggressor, why are you striking your companion? And the answer is, what, are you going to kill me too? And Moses realizes, uh-oh, this is known. And he also hears him say, who made you judge over us? And Moses realizes a couple of things. One, everybody must know but also, his brethren didn't understand that he was relating to them as brethren, that they saw him as an outsider. Pharaoh finds out he seeks to kill Moses, so Moses takes off to the east, and he winds up in Midian, which is east of the Gulf of Aqaba, 
and um, he parks himself by a well. The daughters of Ruel, who is a priest at Midian, they come out to water Ruel's flocks. The shepherds are there. They harass him. Moses, Moses defends them and helps water. And as a result, Moses stays in the house of Ruel. He receives his daughter Zipporah as his wife, and they have a child that's named Gershom. Meanwhile, God is hearing and noting the cries of the Israelites, which takes us to Exodus 3. Let's read verse start of all, verses 1 through 6. Who will do that for us? Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see that this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for the first, for he was afraid to look upon God. Okay, thank you. So Moses is shepherding, and he's got the flocks of Jethro, which is another name for rule, and uh, so he's out there being the shepherd. How would the Egyptian people, that he was raised as a daughter of Pharaoh, right? How would they view being a shepherd? Yeah, go over and look at Genesis 46, 34. Now, there are centuries between Genesis 46, 34 and Moses out there being a shepherd. But I'll bet things haven't changed that much. This is when Abraham, when, uh, excuse me, when Jacob and his family are moving to Egypt uh, and Joseph is prepping them up for how they're going to interact with the Egyptians and what they're going to say about themselves. And this is a statement about being a shepherd. Genesis 46, 34, who can read that? You shall say your flock, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Yeah, you would be an abomination to the Egyptians. You wouldn't just be have a low-life job, you would be low-life. And so it's probably got some portion of that, if not all of that, still right there. And surely as being a son of Pharaoh's daughter, shepherding would be way beneath what would be expected as long as he was in that role. So he's led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And if you've got that map, you can, you can see where he's starting over in Midian. But in the west side of the, of the wilderness, he winds up down at Mount Horeb. And it's said here to be the mountain of God. Well, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same mountain physically. Um, the term Horeb is a Hebrew word for a non-Jewish place name. So it's not any particular meaning, but... Uh, it is, it's just the Hebrew way of talking about the way they would talk about it. 
uh, it means desert place, uh, which is also uh, then Sinai is, is, is another name for that mountain. Mountain of God, this relates to how God will use this location during the Exodus potentially, uh, is why, why they might have said that. And maybe it was already known as a place that was important in the kingdom of God. So um, maybe there were other events that happened there. really don't know why they called it the mountain of God, but uh, certainly before we're done, it absolutely will be the mountain of God before we're done with the book of Exodus. And in verse 2, we hear the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. And the how, how does that angel appear? In the midst of the fire. And this is a unique fire, isn't it? What's unique about it? It's a bush that doesn't burn. And so, you know, that would probably get our attention too. If we saw a bush fully involved but it wasn't consumed, it would probably probably get our attention. The closest thing I can relate to is a, a close landowner to mine was doing some burning that got away from him, and it wound up in a tree line, and I'd never seen this before, I'd heard about it, but there were some cedar trees in that tree line. And that was a fire that got my attention because they would boil the oil in them until they got enough enough of it vaporized and then it was an explosion for each of those trees but if it kept doing that i'd have certainly went what how could it keep doing it but nonetheless here this gets moses attention that term angel of the lord means messenger of yahweh and so we've got a messenger of yahweh there but we're going to find out a lot more about it before we get done how does moses react to what he sees what how does he talk about that Verse 3, what do you see? I must see this marvelous sight. Why is this bush not burning up? Is marvel- hey, what is this? I, I need to look this. I gotta, he's got some curiosity. It's, uh, it's entertaining to some level. Uh, what's going on? And so in verse 4, the Lord saw Moses turn to look. Lord there is the term Jehovah or Yahweh. There just depends on how you put the vowels with them what you're going to wind up with there. But so God himself saw this. And so God called out to him. And there it uses the name that would be normally used as a way to refer to God, which was Elohim, which means God Almighty or God the Most High. And he called out to him from the midst of the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses. And how does Moses respond? Here I am. Can you put yourself in this situation? This is, this is beyond my ability to imagine. But as much as possible, we need to try to put ourselves there. You're a shepherd. You're in a desert place. For whatever reason, you're walking in this particular area and you see this bush that doesn't extinguish itself. So you turn to look at it. Before you step toward it, it's calling out... Something from in the bush is calling out to you. I'm not sure I could even get out what Moses said. I think I would be locked up. What, you know, t- trying to figure out what is going on. Moses responds with, here I am. 
Verse 5 is the next thing that's said by God again. Don't come near me. No problem, God. I was not planning on getting any closer. And I don't mean to make this frivolous, but I mean, that probably was an unnecessary command. But it was necessary in this sense because God is setting up what's going on here and who he is compared to who Moses is. Take off your shoes because where you are standing is holy ground. Now, why don't come near? Why would God say, don't, don't come any closer? Okay, get burned. There's a practical side. There's always some separation with God. What do we know about God? Man, can you look on God and live? No. no. Now, does that mean that God was visibly there? I don't know. I, I, how do I talk about this fire and God being in the midst of the bush? He was there. Was there something visible? I don't, I don't know. But I know he's setting up his own holiness. And he says, where you are standing is holy ground. Is that piece of ground what was holy? No. What made the ground holy? God's here. My presence puts you in a situation where holiness is here. You are in a holy environment. And so the ground itself is holy. You can't walk on it with your shoes. And so all of that's going on. Uh, God is present in the area. It's holy. And so God is protecting Moses by telling him, be careful to show the proper respect. Take your shoes off. Be obedient to me right here. This is a time when God speaks and it is expected that Moses will exactly follow. It's not a moment of, I hope you'll choose to be obedient to me. I want to go over to 2 Samuel 6, 6 and 7 for a minute. Familiar story when we get there. Um, they have been, um, David has come to power. He wants the Ark home, the Ark of the Covenant. It had been captured, it had been brought partway home, but had stopped and various things were going on with that. And so David sends out a crew to go get the Ark and bring it back. It belongs in the capital. And I'd have to go back and look and see if David has taken Jerusalem yet or not. I don't remember where we're at with that. But he sends a crew out. And this is part of what happened. Second Samuel 6, 6 and 7. Somebody read that. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there beside the ark of God. So, why was God angry? That might not be the right question to start with. What's wrong with this situation? What's going on that is... They just don't, aren't acknowledging the holiness of the... Of the okay. It wasn't being transported according to law. It wasn't being transported, and, and, and I'm, it's fine you said according to law because it was law, but who gave the law very directly? 
God gave specific instructions. The Ark of the Covenant will be transported in this way only. And what was it? There were gold rings in the side of the Ark. They had poles that they made to put in them, and men would pick the ark up, multiple men, and transport it by using those poles. How was it happening here? Was that Uzzah's decision? We don't know. We don't know who the ramrod was for this little expedition. But somebody decided the way to move the cart, move the, the uh, ark of the covenant was on a cart pulled by oxen. Stage wasn't very well set for a good day, was it? And as the ark, as the oxen move around, it says, they jostled the ark. So what's about to happen to the ark, it appears? It's going to fall. How would you like to be the person trying to figure out what to do about that problem at that point? Now, we've made enough mistakes already, right? We've got, an, we've got oxen pulling a cart. We shouldn't be there. So now we've already got a mess set up. And the silly, I shouldn't say silly, the silly thing with this setup is that the oxen jostle things and the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall onto the ground. Do you think God would be happy if it fell? No. But was God happy when somebody stopped it from falling? No. God was angry. Was he angry because he stopped the fall? Sort of. But what's the underlying base issue that made God angry? Because Uzzah, what? It's right there in the verses we read. He wasn't supposed to use the oxen. Well, that's true, but read, read in those verses. Why was God angry with Uzzah? Because he lacked reverence. It was an attitude thing that made God angry. Now, it was also an action thing that came out of the attitude. But apparently for Uzzah, this is just a box I'm supposed to get back to David. When in reality, what he had was the Ark of the Covenant built according to God's instructions and had a special place in God's relationship with the Israelites, and he just treated it like a box. Now, it may have had to do with whatever. Maybe Uzzah's the one that said, let's use a cart. I don't know what else Uzzah might have done that was irreverent, but God said, he, he, doesn't, he is not treating me like I'm holy. So he struck him dead. In like manner, here's Moses in front of God, and God says, treat me like I'm holy. Here's what you do right now. Take your shoes off and keep your distance. And, of course, Moses would do that. This probably resonates a little extra with me right now because I've been... I recently read 2 Samuel. And I'm thinking about my prayer time and my reading time and other things, and I'm going, am I treating this nonchalantly? Am I just going through the motions? Am I... Am I really coming with the right attitude to be coming into the presence of this holy God? And then when we hit the lesson today, I'm like, oh, more of it. Well, uh, God, you're obviously working on me a little bit here. And so I'm just letting you look inside of me as God works on me. 
But I would encourage you to give some thought to your prayer times and the ways you serve God. And I mean, we, when we pray, we're coming into the presence of the Holy God. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us if we're born-again believers. Do we walk around with that Holy Spirit in a manner that shows the proper reverence for God? Or do we spend our lives just making us happy? Just good food for thought. I don't have specific instructions for you beyond that. But I would say that's worth a lot of consideration. Particularly as we go into a times of greater tension in the world. We talked about that this morning. We're going to be more and more dependent on that Holy Spirit. And we will want to have the right kind of relationship with God and His Spirit. All right. Too many pages here. Um, so now, okay, I lost that. Let's read, beginning in verse, oh no, we read verse 6. Um, verse 6, God identifies himself. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this is a common way to refer to God, right? Based on who he was the God of, particularly for the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founding patriarchs of your race, of your family, and of the covenant of Abraham, which is extended down in the promise through the rest of them. Now, so here's a good question. Who, what portion or what entity, I'm not sure the right way to say this, of the Trinity is here. Who's here? What's that? God himself. Now we could easily say if we wanted to, to talk about we say this is a theophany. This is the presence of God to people directly here, right here on earth. An interesting thing is, and I'm, I'm not going to argue with them, but could be this be what we call a Christophany? Could this be the presence of Jesus himself? And uh, I think we can get there a little bit. I want to look at um, a, this verse first. Let's go over to Luke 5, 5 through 8. Luke 5, 5 through 8. In this passage, Jesus is teaching. And he's having an interaction with the Jewish people where they're rebelling against some things Jesus is saying because they're saying, uh-uh. Uh, we have Abraham. We we're, we're already have our importance set. We're children of the promise. We're children of Abraham. And this is Jesus' response to that. Luke 5, 5 through 8. Who can do that for us? But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Uh, yeah, keep going. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. 
So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled their boats, both their boats, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and sang, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Yeah, I'm sorry. My whole lead-in was all wrong. And from the context, you can see what happened here. This is Jesus' first interaction with Simon Peter, one of his very early ones. And one of the things that we see in verse 6 is that Moses, uh, uh, you got to get to verse 6. Um, it says at the end of the verse, then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so here is Simon asked to fish they've been fishing all night can't catch a thing they said well just try the other side of the boat now i like to fish and sometimes the other side of the boat will do a little better than the side i was trying to fish on at the time but this is way beyond that they have so many fish they have to get more help and the nets are full and this is so many it's bordering on a disaster and Simon realizes something, and what he realized was, deity is in my presence. And how does he respond to Jesus? Mm -hmm. Didn't he say something? I didn't know. What's that? Get away from me, I'm sinful. When we really realize we're in the presence of God, it causes us throughout the history. We could, we could look at Isaiah 6. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Isaiah's vision of God, when he's having this vision of God, he sees him holy and lifted up on the throne and so on, and there's this interaction in his vision. And woe is me. I am undone because he knows He's a sinful man in the presence of holiness while this vision is going on. And this is a common thing. The other passage I apparently just failed to write down was Jesus said to those Jews when they were having the interaction, I can't just instantly turn to it. They say, Abraham's our father, and he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. And that I am, there's some really interesting things going on. I know what it is. It's coming up later in our study. There's some interesting things that goes on with those words. I was miss. I had it overly simplified in my head. Every time you see I am, that's Jehovah. And that's just not quite right. But nonetheless, Jesus is saying, I pre-existed Abraham and we know that because he was part of creation and nothing was made without him and so is it possible we have the whole trinity here and it certainly is okay now let's read uh, verses any questions or comments so far let's see if I can get this um got to find the next tickler yeah let's read verses 7 through 10 then the Lord said I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt 
who have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed. And I'm going to ask you to stop there. That was my fault. I meant 7 through 9. And so as God begins now to lay out for Moses why he's here, he said, <clears throat> and it's the Lord said, Jehovah, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people in Egypt. And so God clearly has the promise in mind. He remembers their, his chosen people. And he says, I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. So God is seeing two things here. He's seeing the people are suffering and crying out. They want relief. But he's also seeing these taskmasters and how they are oppressing these people of his own covenant with Abraham. And so he's, he's, he's talking about his knowledge of it. He says there in verse 7, I know their sufferings. In verse 8, he gets to, so that's why I'm here. I have come down to deliver them from the might of the Egyptians. And so here are the Egyptians, and I'm, I'm going I'm to deliver them from these folks. They're being evil to them. And he says, I'm going to bring them up from there to a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. Go over to Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. Let's take a look at those verses for a minute. Genesis 13, 14 and 15. Okay, so when God made that promise to Abraham, and he says it multiple ways, multiple times, but often he says, sojourn the area, and everywhere you go, you're going to get it. And what he means is, you, the people that follow you, this is part of the promise. And so he says, good and spacious land. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm going to give you a nice-sized area. And uh, it's flowing with milk and honey. And sure enough, um, they spies will see that when we get to the end of this book or toward the end of their journey and then he goes into this list the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites and I thought I really want to bring some level of understanding to some of that <clears throat> and I didn't do very well but let's go down through them we have heard when we were studying Genesis about a Hittite at least. The Hittites came from Asia Minor, the area generally we call Turkey today. And we see interaction with a Hittite because Abraham goes and buys the cave from a Hittite that becomes the burial site for Sarah, later for him, and later for others in the family. So that Hittite was there. The Amorite 
there's not a lot we know about who the Amorites were that I found. Somebody might have better sources. But there was an Amorite when he was at the Oaks of Mamre. He was there and they, he had allies there that went with him to pursue the kings of the east when they came and ra raided Sodom and so on and took a lot captive. Those were his allies. So the Amorites were there. The Perizzites, all I can really tell you today is they lived in southern Canaan. The Hivites and Jebusites were both descendants of Ham. Um, they were sons of Canaan through Ham. Um, and the Hivites, the man Shechem, who raped Dinah back when we were going through that. He was a Hivite. And uh, um, the, uh, yeah, the, the first mention of, oh, I, I left that out with regard to the Perizzites. Um, when Abraham and Lot's shepherds clashed and Abraham and Lot separated, there were, they, they, there were, they were in the area where there were some Parasites. So, basically, I'm going to give you this area where these folks that live in Palestine today, that time they would have called it Canaan or Israel today, I'm going to give you land that these people are currently inhabiting or give that to these people as I bring them out. And we get to 9, verse 9, God is still speaking. He says, Behold, look, be sure, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. He make, but that word that's often translated behold at the beginning that makes this a strong statement I see it furthermore I have seen the oppression of the Egyptians toward them and so he's got two reasons that he mentions here in verse 9 to go after them it's that the cry of the children of the promise and those that are offending them are the Egyptians what was the promise to Abraham those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. If you and I were one of these people who had been born out of the group of 75 that came to Egypt and we were being oppressed in this way in this time, it might have tested us a bit to see if we still believed in that promise, wouldn't it? God moves more slowly sometimes than we might think we wished he did. But our God is a good God, and he, he did take care of them. I've got to pick a good stopping point. Um, all right, let's, let's look at verses 10 Um, <laughs> let's read the rest of the chapter. We'll just see how much talking we get done. Uh, 10 through 22. And if you don't want to read it all, you can stop partway through and somebody else can pick it up. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, and that you may, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in the mountain. 
Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, the God, of your, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is this name? What is his name? What shall I, I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, have sent, you to, have sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go, and rather the elders of the Israel, and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what I have done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and the land of Canaanites and the Hittites, whatever, and the Amorites and the Pizzerites and the Hephatites and the Jesuitites to the land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey to the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, nor no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbors, namely of her, of her who dwell near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thank you. So we get to why God is meeting with Moses. Did Moses just wander on a burning bush and somebody else might have been the one to wander up? No, God was going after Moses very clearly. And so he now turns to Moses and says, Therefore, as a result of what I've told you, you are to come now. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, if you had been Moses, if you can try to think about who Moses was, what was his last interaction with Pharaoh? Who wants to kill me? It's kind of like, um, I, this doesn't sound very comfortable, does it? I mean, th this is not what he was planning on. He left that morning, wherever he was camped with his sheep, to get them food and water, and he planned when the day was over to go back to camping with the sheep, and at the right time, he would go back to his father-in-law's house, be with his family, and live this kind of existence, kind of this exile from the land of Egypt because he has offended both the Jews and Pharaoh. I mean, they're not, the Jews weren't saying, hey, let's follow Moses around. Last time he had an interaction with them, he said, you're going to kill me too? Who made you judge over us? And so uh, God says, I'm going to send you. And it's not surprising how Moses reacts. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Why are you picking me? And that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. So Moses looks at God and says, What do I have to offer this operation? 
you're not thinking about the right things to pick a man who's in a good position to accomplish this. That's implied in what Moses says. Does God argue with Moses? That's a little bit of a trick question. Yes and no. God never affirms Moses as going to be doing this out of who Moses is. But God does argue with Moses, and this is how he does it. In verse 12, he said, Certainly, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So what did he just tell Moses? He's going to be there. How is that supposed to enter into the equation right here of their, of Moses going? Well, how's it happening? From God's perspective, is this the end of the discussion? In theory. Now, they're going to have to talk a while more because Moses isn't going to get it. But when God said, I'm going to be with you, that's kind of like, if I'm with you, what else is there to talk about? What were the words about Joseph and all of his successes? Do you remember? Joseph went to the prison and... God was with him. And as a result, they let him run his own prison for all practical purposes. And so this should have been enough if Moses was thinking clearly. Now, I don't think we ought to find too much fault with Moses uh, in the sense that I don't think any of us at this moment, our first encounter with the living God calling us by name and having a conversation with us, we're probably not going to be uh, at our best where our insights are probably going to be spinning. But even in all of that, God says, and I'm going to give you a sign that this is true. And what's his sign? I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. And what's the sign? Yeah, or worship on this mountain. Yeah, God said, you'll know it's the truth because when you bring them out, you're going to be worshiping right here. And of course, we know the Mount Sinai plays a huge role in what will happen in their exodus out of Egypt. And it establishes God in multiple ways. Unfortunately, the people don't do so well during that time at Mount Sinai. But nonetheless, how would you like that for a sign? If you think about that a minute, if you're going to send me on a task like this, I'd like a sign that's going to show itself before I get to the people. But he's not going to get his sign until he's gone to the people, he's got them to follow him, he's got to go through the plagues with Pharaoh, he's got to march the people out, they're going to cross the Red Sea, I mean just keep going. That, that sign, yeah, yeah, that's going to be a sign because that is huge. I mean, what happens at Mount Sinai, I don't want to minimize that, is huge. But by the time he gets there, he's already got to know God's with him or they wouldn't have made it that far, right? So, yeah, it's an interesting sign that God offers to him here. Well, I, I'm going to stop it there 
at the end of verse 12, and we'll pick it up there, and it really isn't a big problem because they're not talk, done talking at the end of chapter 3. They're going to be talking through chapter 4 as well. So we'll pick it up there and, um, and move on through the rest of this encounter between Moses and God where God commissions him to go to the Israelites. Any parting comments or questions? All right, well, thank you for your patience, and we'll see you next time.